And now, a message from Pastor Michael Carmody. It's great to have everyone with us this morning. Thank you for coming. It's always great to have you here. When you're not here, things aren't quite the same because you are the church. And so it's always nice to have you here. Those of you that are joining us online, we're glad to have you with us today as well. We know you're out there and we appreciate you being part of our service today. Yeah, so last week we started a brand new series um, in, our, in our services. Anybody remember uh, the, the title, the name of that series? Courageous. courageous. Very good. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when I think of that word courageous, I always think of a passage um, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. I'm going to read that real quick. I, w- I don't have a, s- a slide for it on the screen, but I just want to read it. So when I think of that idea of courage, I'm reminded that you and I have the ability to be courageous in our walk with God. And and here's what kind of prompts that for me anyway. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says this, Let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness. With what? With boldness. With courage, right? With boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I need mercy and grace to help in time of need almost all the time. Um, I realize that his mercies are new every morning. His grace is always with us because God is gracious. It's his nature. It's the character of God to extend grace to us, to extend mercy to us. And therefore, we can come with confidence. We can come courageously. We can come boldly before God's throne of grace, not saying, here I am, God, look how wonderful I am, but we can come to him knowing that through Christ we have been forgiven, we've been made righteous before him, and we have access to God's throne without hesitation. So we can courageously come before God and say, God, I lay my life before you, whatever we have need of, his mercy and grace is there to help us in our time of need. Let the church say amen. And we could end the service right there because that is a great thought that we have God's grace and God's mercy. Of course, you know I'm not going to end there. Uh, So last week, Pastor Josh launched this uh, series by talking about Rahab, kind of constantly referred to as Rahab the harlot. Uh, So this was a woman to whom God showed extreme grace and mercy. Uh, This is someone where you really see the picture of God's redemption. He takes a woman who is not of Jewish lineage, who is a, a, a harlot, a prostitute, as the Bible says, and uh, actually, because of her courageous decision to hide the spies of Israel, God saves not only her, but also her entire family. She gets brought into the nation of Israel, which is really kind of unheard of. It's a work of God's grace to bring an outsider into the nation of Israel. She marries a guy by the name of Salmon, and they actually have a son who becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And we read about that in the book of Matthew. Pastor Josh brought all that up last week. That is a tremendous study of God's redemption and how courage is rewarded right? So when we come boldly before the throne of grace, when we have the courage to come to God and say, God, this is where I'm at. This is the mess I've made. This is what I've been doing or thinking or whatever. When we have the courage to come to him, his grace and mercy is there to help us always. That's really good news, by the way. So we talked about Rahab last week. Today, we're going to move on. In this series, we're talking about four women who displayed great courage. And uh, today we're going to discuss Ruth. And so uh, the book of Ruth, um, falls in chronologically with the the book of Judges. 
So just a real, real quick history. You're probably familiar with the fact that Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, right? And God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He led the children of Israel through the wilderness. After Moses died, Joshua took over. Joshua led the nation of Israel into the promised land. And then Joshua dies. And after Joshua, for the next 375 years in Israel's history, there are 17 different judges that God raises up. And by judges, it doesn't mean they're sitting like you'd think of in a robe and a gavel judging Israel, but they were leaders, those who would lead Israel for the next 375 years. And uh, of these 17 judges, some of them were very good leaders who brought the people of God closer to the heart of God. Some of them were very bad leaders, honestly, that drew the people away from the heart of God and even toward uh, heathen forms of worship and adapted some of the religions of the polytheistic nations around them and worshiped multiple gods. And so it was a time, the judges was a time in Israel of kind of like, a, think of a roller coaster spiritually. They're up sometimes and then they're really down and really bad and they come into a bad place and then God, they cry out to God and he delivers them and things go well again and then they crash again and this kind of this constant um, wave you might say of spiritual um, apostasy falling into the old ways of doing things and so we follow this and uh, there's that struggle going on within Israel but also during the time of Judges, uh, the nation of Israel is new in this promised land still. And there's a lot of other nations around them that are causing conflict, that are coming to, to battle with them at times, uh, that they're having various types of conflict with, that they are not getting uh, peaceful responses from. And so they have not just the internal conflict, but the external conflict as well. And you know, that's kind of life, isn't it? You ever notice that we struggle with stuff inside sometimes in our thinking, in our heart, in our pursuit of God? We sometimes struggle. Some days you might feel like you're more on fire for God, and other days you're just not too sure what you think or where you're at. Anybody with me in this? I know it's true because it happens to me sometimes. It happens to all of us. And yet God wants our spirituality, even when we're down in those low places, he wants us to know that he's there with us, that his mercy and his grace is always there, that he's wanting to work in our lives. And we're not going to dig ourselves out of the pits that we create for ourselves. We've got to let God's grace and mercy help us come up out of this stuff, right? And so, um, so we go through the same kind of thing, you know, uh, as Israel did. But then there's also the outside challenges, things that we might run across in our world or things that we read or hear on the news or stuff that happens. And there's all this outside influence too that tries to get us off track sometimes, right? Amen. And so even in that stuff, God wants us to stay focused that no matter what's happening in the world or what anybody says about you or what anybody else does, God is in control. His mercy and his grace is still very active, still very real. And whether you realize it or not, working on your behalf right now. God's mercy is working for you right now. God's grace is operating on your behalf right now, and that should make somebody happy because we need his mercy and his grace every day in our lives, and that's the beautiful thing about it. He says his mercy is new every morning, and God is grace. He is the demonstration of grace. So we have this kind of connection there with Israel, but uh, so the, the Jewish people were going through this, this struggle, this time called uh, the, the period of the Judges. And within that, as soon as you finish reading the Judges as you read through the Bible, the next book in the Bible is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth opens up a, a conversation, it's four chapters, opens up a conversation about one individual by the name of Ruth. And it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a long story. Last week, Pastor Josh read the entire chapter that had the, the Rahab story in it. I can't read the entire book of Ruth today, so I'm going to try to pull out some excerpts, some pertinent passages to kind of give us an overview of what's happening, okay? So we're going to begin, and uh, a good place to begin is at the beginning, and so we're going to look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, 
there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Chilion, he's just, he's just Chilion, you know. Just they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. When they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So right off the bat, uh, this story is kind of a bummer. I mean, you got this, you got this couple, right? A couple in Israel live in the city of Bethlehem. And uh, there's a famine in the city of Bethlehem. I'm just going to do a real quick recap. Famine in the city of Bethlehem. So they leave Bethlehem. They go to Moab. This is a nation. They go to the nation of Moab. And uh, they come into the nation of Moab. They live there for about 10 years. And um, her husband dies. And then her two sons marry Moabite women. And then her two sons die. And for a Jewish woman to lose her husband and her two sons means she no longer has a male covering. This is a curse for a woman. Sorry, ladies, but that's how it was in ancient Israel. If you didn't have a male, a close male relative, uh, a brother, a father, a husband, or a son, then you were kind of under a curse of not having a male covering in your life. This was a bad place for a woman to be. And so um, things have kind of gone bad for her. Um, so this, this begins with a famine, and they run from uh, Bethlehem. They head to Moab uh, because of the famine, because there's food in Moab. But the problem is um, there's a little bit of a, a concern about that because when they go to Moab, Moab is an enemy nation. Uh, when we think about Moab um, during the time of the judges, during this period of time, the Moabites were kind of the enemy of the Israelites. There was conflict there. The Moabites were idol worshipers. Um, they, in fact, had very obscene ways of worshiping. Um, they often um, engaged in human sacrifices in their worship. And um, so going into the, the nation of Moab makes one wonder why would they do that? There's a lot of questions that we have left over from the book of Ruth as we read it. The first one is, why would they go to Moab? Um, how are they even welcomed in Moab? We don't know the answers to this, but they get there, and um, this, um, the husband, Elimelech, dies. We don't know how or why. He just dies. And then after they've been there about 10 years, the, the boys have married Moabite women. The boys both die as well. And so Naomi is left with this curse over her head of no male covering. So he, she goes to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and she says to them, um, you know, your husbands have died. Go back to your families. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I've heard that the famine is over. There's food in Bethlehem. I'm going home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You two stay here in Moab. It's about a 50-mile journey from Bethlehem to Moab. Could have been one of the reasons they went there. It's not very far away. 50 miles of rugged terrain, maybe a 7- to 10-day journey. She says, it's time for me after 10 years. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You girls stay here. Orpah turns around and goes back to her family, and we never hear from Orpah again. However, Ruth has a different perspective. And uh, here's, what, here's what Ruth says. You'll see this on the screen. She says, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me 
from you. So Ruth's perspective on this was, listen, I don't, I don't care what anybody else does. I'm not leaving your side. This is a, a daughter-in-law who had made a bond, who'd made a connection with her mother-in-law and chooses her mother-in-law over her own family and says, I'm going to stay with you. And, you're, and the, the line in here probably that's most telling is, your, your God will be my God. Somehow, through knowing Naomi, she got some glimpse, some idea of this God of Israel. Different from the multiple gods that were worshipped in Moab, there's a God in Israel who works miracles for the, for the Israeli people. There's a God of compassion and mercy. There's a God who had sustained Naomi during a period of famine. There's a God, she must have seen, even though Naomi now feels that she's under a curse, she's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, there must be some kind of a strength or there must be something there that Ruth says, I want to stick with you. I'm staying with you. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I'll die. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm turning my back on everything I've known and I'm joining with you and I'm going forward with you. And that was Ruth's perspective. That's what she was going to be, do. And so they, they come into the city of Bethlehem, and uh, it's a small community in those days, and they see Naomi coming, and the people begin to celebrate. And they say, Naomi has returned. That's the mom, right? Naomi has returned. And they begin to celebrate the fact that Naomi is there. And Naomi makes this statement. She says, don't call me Naomi, but instead call me Mara. And that word Mara means bitterness. Naomi means pleasantness. She left Bethlehem in a pleasant situation, in a pleasant surrounding. She comes back in bitterness. She says, just call me Mara. I've lost my pleasantness. My husband's gone. My sons are gone. Her life's in a bad place, right? Names meant a lot back in those days. She would not allow them to call her Naomi because that means that she's pleasant and there's no pleasantness in her life. Call me Mara. Call me bitter instead. And so she has this perspective that her life has gone through a drastic change, a drastic moment of life change has taken place. And so she shows up, she comes in with, with Ruth, who, by the way, Ruth means friendship and companion. And Ruth says, I don't care what you've been through or what's going on in your life. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your companion. I don't know about you, but it's just good to have people who will stick with you when you go through stuff. Isn't that right? Especially when you go through life-altering experiences, life-altering events, it's good to have people that'll stand with you and go with you through that. You know what? We may not always have the answer for people when they're going through stuff, but if you'll be like Ruth and be a friend, be a companion, that's sometimes all it takes for somebody to know that their life is still worth living and there's somebody there for them. You know people all around you that you could be a Naomi to, or you could be a Ruth to. You could be someone that you let them come and help you through your times of struggle, or you go and step into their messes, step into their life when they're going through a life-altering situation, and just be there for them. We don't have to have all the answers. I remember 40 years ago when my wife and I lost our first son. He only lived a couple of weeks, and it was a tough time. It was something of a life-altering experience for us. We'd, only, we'd been Christians for less than a year, but, you know, we had family, and we had... Uh, our own you know, biological family, but we also had church family that came around us and just offered friendship and companionship and walked through it with us. Didn't try to explain it, didn't try to tell us what we needed to do in the midst of it, just stood with us and walked with us. And that's valuable. It's valuable to have those roofs in our lives when we're going through stuff, those who will be companions. And it's good for us to have the courage like Ruth did to say, you know what, I'm leaving everything behind that I know and I'm just gonna step into this mess and I'm gonna be part of what you're going through in life. We need that from time to time, don't we? So um, Ruth is going to go with Naomi. They're going to go back to the land. But there's something that Naomi undoubtedly knew, and Ruth probably knew too, which kind of raises 
the courage level just a little bit for Ruth, and that is that Ruth was going to a place where she was not welcome. In fact, she was forbidden by Jewish law to come to Israel. Let me show you a verse here in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23 that says this. Check this out. No Ammonite or Moabite. What was Ruth? She was a Moabite. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, excuse me, even to the 10th generation shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. I mean, Moab, the Moabites were not honored and welcomed people. When it says don't bring them into your assembly, it doesn't mean don't bring them into a worship service. It means don't bring them into your people, into your nation. The, the religious life and the natural life of Israel was one and the same. They're saying, don't, don't let them be part of who you are. They had to have known that. They're not a favored people. So when Ruth decides that she's going back with Naomi, she knows that she's stepping into a hostile environment. So when they show up in Bethlehem, she's completely accepted and welcomed in that place, which just again speaks of God's grace his compassion, just like you and I. We don't have any, we don't really have any business being part of God's kingdom, but he invited us anyway, right? And when we got here, he accepted us. He gave us his heart, his life, his Holy Spirit. He forgave us. He gave us something to live for, changed our lives. Anybody with me on this? So Ruth had one motive. She wanted to be a friend to Naomi. She came to Bethlehem. Everything is great. Everything's going fine. I got to move the storyline forward. You're holding me up a little bit here. In the second chapter, we just got to move ahead a little bit. In the second chapter, first verse, check it out with me. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Everybody say Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, go, my daughter. So she went and she came and gleaned in the field uh, behind the reapers. And as it happened, everybody say, as it happened. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Isn't it amazing how things just happen when you do the right thing? And you're living for God and you're walking with God. I, you know, somebody says, I think you know, some people are just lucky. And I say, I find out I get a lot luckier when I pray. You know? <laughs> We, we, have this, we have this God who wants to work on our behalf. We just have to put ourselves in the place where he can do that, right? And so uh, Naomi um, gives, gives Ruth permission to go and glean in this field. And it ends up, it just happens to be the field of Boaz, who's a family relative, a relative of Elimelech. Um, so in those days, the, the, there were two types of people who worked in the field, other than the planters and those who did the early work. The, the harvesters were called reapers, and they were called gleaners. So a real quick little history lesson here. The reapers were hired by the landowner. If somebody owned a lot of land, they would hire multiple reapers. And the reapers would do the job of the combine. And they would go through the field, and they'd make the combine noise, and they'd peel the, no, they didn't actually do that, but they peeled the grain off of the stalks. It was their job. The reapers reaped the harvest, and they would have vessels, or they would have some type of a, a vessel or something that they would put the grain in, and they would pull that with them or bring that with them as they reaped the harvest. These people were paid by the landowner. They would just simply bring the crops, and the landowner would pay them for a day's wages. We read about Jesus telling the parable about someone going out and doing a day's work for a day's wage, right? And then somebody else showing up in the last hour and getting the same pay. This is the kind of thing we'd be talking about, the reapers. Then there were gleaners, and there are two ways that gleaners um, 
may have gotten paid, so to speak. Sometimes the landowners would actually hire gleaners. What the gleaners did is they walked some pace behind the reapers and they would pick up what the reapers missed because humans miss stuff sometimes. You ever notice that? Uh, sometimes humans overlook things or people are kind of working fast or whatever and they would leave uh, some stuff either on the ground or some of it still on the stock. And so the gleaners would come and they would pick up what the reapers left. So this is kind of like, you know, like a second sweep to make sure we're getting the whole harvest picked up here. And the gleaners could either be hired by the landowner. So the landowner may hire reapers and gleaners. If that's the case, then the gleaners bring the grain that they glean and they give it to the landowner and he pays them a wage. Or, and this is what the nation of Israel actually told the people of Israel to do, is to let the poor people come and glean in your fields. Let those people come and glean in your fields who have no other way of eating or no other way of sustaining themselves. And so Ruth shows up in this field, not hired by anybody. She just falls in with a group of people that she sees reaping and she's allowed to do the gleaning. And so she's walking behind and she's picking up the gleanings and that's what she's doing. And it just happens that she ends up in the field of Boaz, right? Let's pick up in verse four of Ruth chapter two. Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came and she has been on her feet from early morning until now without resting, even for a moment. Then Boaz, he went to Ruth, he says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told me and now how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. So this is an interesting story. So Ruth is just walking along gleaning and Boaz, the landowner shows up and the first thing he says is bless you. And they say bless you. And then he asks the guy in charge of the reapers, who's this girl. I'm not sure what his interest might have been, but he wanted to know who is this, who is this girl that's gleaning. I, I kind of have a feeling that he kind of had the reaction to Ruth that I had when I first saw my wife. Who is this? There's just something there, you know? I have proof that this may have been what happened. Anyway, so um, this is during the, the harvest when all of the end harvesting of the year is being done. And so... Um, there was a law in Israel, an ancient law, that if a man marries a woman and he dies and doesn't bring any children into the world, that the man's brother has a requirement to bring up children for his brother with his widow, with the brother's widow. Make sense, kind of? Uh, so that was just a law in Israel, that, that the, the brother would take on that responsibility of having children, raising those children up as though they belonged to his brother. And so... Um, of course, Malon, who was Ruth's husband, didn't have a brother because his brother Chilion was 
just chilling somewhere and died. So they're both gone. So there's nobody to raise up children in the name of Malon for, uh, for Ruth. And so, um, so Naomi tells Ruth, she said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, this is the end of the harvest. Now all the harvest is coming in. She says, I want you to wait until Boaz has had his dinner and has drank plenty of wine. Then I want you to go when he's asleep and I want you to lay down at his feet. Now, this just sounds kind of odd to us, but it was, it was a symbol. It was something uh, that meant that she was submitting herself to what's known as the rite of kinship, or she's actually asking him to perform the rite of kinship for her because she's a widow and he's a close family member, and so she believes that he can do this. So Boaz wakes up, sees her there, doesn't know who it is, kind of startles him, and he says, who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth. And he covers her up, and he said, well, um, I would like to perform, this kind of a Carmody paraphrase here, I would like to perform the rite of kinship, but there's one relative closer. I wonder how he knew that so quickly. <laughs> I mean, he must have been checking the lineage somewhere, right? Because he wanted to know, how many do I have to get through before Ruth can be redeemed, right? How, how, how long is this going to take? And so he tells her there's one person who um, is, has, is a closer kin than me, so we have to check with him and see if he wants to redeem, wants to go through the process of redeeming you. And so he goes to this guy, they meet at the city gate, and he says, I've got a parcel of land that used to belong to Malon, the son of Elimelech, and I want to sell that parcel of land, and you're next in line, you can buy it if you want to. You want to buy it? And he said, yeah, I'll buy it. And he said, if you buy it, you have to take Ruth too. And he said, well, that messed up my whole, my wife's not going to go for that. So uh, that's going to mess up everything, so I'm not going to buy the land. And Boaz says, okay. He removes a shoe, which is symbolic of, okay, you have made this decision, and everybody witnesses I'm buying the land. And so he buys the land, which means he also gets to marry Ruth. So let's jump ahead to Ruth 4.13 and um, check this out. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your, of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Incredibly, this Moabite woman, who is a persona non grata, someone who is not allowed even to be in the nation of Israel, musters the courage to follow her mother-in-law because of her faithfulness, because of her friendship, because of her companionship, follows her into a foreign land, marries a man there and finds herself in the lineage of King David, the most celebrated king in the Old Testament nation of Israel. Not only that, but that lineage is also the lineage that moves forward into the coming of Jesus. In fact, here's a passage that Pastor Josh read last week from Matthew 1.5. Check this out. So it says this, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. So this Rahab the harlot marries a guy by the name of Salmon or Salmon, and they have a son by the name of what? Boaz. Boaz. Who's Boaz? He's the landowner that Ruth comes and gleans from and ends up marrying, right? So let's look at this again. This is Matthew 1, 4, and 5. Check it out. Salmon begot, I'm, I'm sorry, 5 and 6, actually. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So now we have not just Rahab, 
who was the harlot in this lineage of the Savior. But we also have Ruth, the companion, the one who is a friend to a foreigner in this lineage of Jesus. And if you think about it, the entire life of Christ is about making friends out of people who should not be friends. Bringing us sinners close to the heart of God by forgiving our sin. Giving us the ability to, with courage and boldness, step before the throne of the creator of the universe. Not because there's anything in us that allows us to do that, but because it's, it's kind of interesting, just as Ruth was, on, uh, was in Jesus' lineage before Jesus came, we're in Jesus' lineage after he came. We are part of the lineage of Christ spiritually. You all with me on this? And so we have this wonderful connection. When Ruth made that decision, when she made that choice to go in a new direction, to find a new people, to find a new God, to worship differently than she ever had before. She opened the door for blessings on her life that she never could have imagined. Let me tell you something, when we make a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we do the same thing. We open up opportunities for blessings on our life that we would have never imagined. The, the, the storyline of Boaz and Ruth, Boaz is known as the kinsman redeemer, the one who redeems the widow, the nearest of kin who redeems the widow, kins, the kinsman redeemer. When you think about it, our redeemer, Jesus, has redeemed us fully. In fact, that word redemption, one of the definitions of the word redemption means to improve your opportunities. When Ruth went into Israel, she improved her opportunities. When she met Boaz, she improved him even more. When she caught Boaz's eye, things started really moving. She ends up marrying Boaz, getting in the lineage of Jesus. I mean, this is the blessing on her life. And Naomi, the one who was cursed, now has a grandson, now has someone that she can nurture, now has the curse lifted off of her life, and she's blessed because Ruth chose to stay with her. Listen, God has chosen to stay with us and our lives are blessed. Are you with me on this? We have been blessed beyond anything we could have ever imagined. Our sins have been forgiven. Our opportunities have been improved. Our future has been set before us. God knows the plans he has for us. They're good plans to give us a brilliant future. God's plans for us are always good. We're gonna, we, we, we sing about that. God's plans for us are always good. His purposes for us are always good. I want you to get this. God loves you. He has a great plan for you. He sees you as not a problem to be fixed, but he sees you as an object of his love. He wants our lives to be fully redeemed. He wants us to live free from the junk of this life, from all the stuff of Moab. He wants us to be people of Israel. He wants us to step into the blessings that God has for us. It's pretty incredible. One last passage I want to share with you as we look at this application of these verses, and it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Check this out. So then remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, or let me, let me change that up a little bit. So then remember that you one time called Moabites, right? We were outside of the blessings of God. Gentiles by birth, wow, sorry, my tablet just jumped like crazy. So that's up there, I'll read it. Um, <laughs> Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ. Anybody remember a time when you were, can anybody remember a time when you were without Christ? How'd that feel? Not so good, right? Without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, separated from the blessings of Israel, we might say. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Those promises that we hold on to right now, they weren't ours once upon a time, but they are now, thank God, right? Having no hope. Do you you remember moments of having no hope, being without God in the world? Guess what? Next next verse, is there another verse? No, should have been. Uh, We don't want to leave it there, do we? Okay, good. But now, verse 13 says this, so just listen carefully. But now, everybody say, but now. In Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is redemption, right? That's an absolute transformation of our position. So we have been redeemed. We have been brought near. We should have courage. Ruth had the courage to do what she knew she probably shouldn't do. We need to have the courage to do what we know we should do to step closer to God, to come to him in prayer, knowing that he hears us and that we can come boldly before his throne because his mercy and his grace is always there for us. I want to pray. For more information on New Covenant, contact us at 3318 Fifth Avenue South, Fort Dodge, Iowa, 50501. Or you can call us at 515-955-6222.